markets, investments. That's it. Get ready for insights, opinions, and discussions you will not hear at your local bank, on mainstream business television, or from Ivory Tower Advisors. My name is Adrian Harsimiu, and I am The Recovering Bankster. Hello, and welcome back to The Recovering Bankster Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Harsimiu, guiding you through this, Episode 2, transmitting to the world from deep within the prairie land of Canada. Episode 2 means there's another episode you likely missed. Actually, you may have missed two episodes so far, since I also released an episode zero. I know, I know. Episode zero? I'll let the mystery consume you enough to go listen to it yourself. No freebies here, ladies and gentlemen. I don't discuss matters in a vacuum. There are always some ties to previous comments I make, so I think it's best to listen to earlier episodes for better context. But that's just my friendly suggestion to help strengthen the recovery process. If that's a suggestion you're not willing to take, well, I'll relent this time and I'll give you a quick reminder on all things Recovering Bankster. So get your pen and paper out. Ready? Money, markets, and investments all delivered to you in a refreshing, clear, and unique style. Capiche? For every Recovering Bankster chapter, I recommend you buckle up in your seat because our road is one that's less traveled, so it's not for the faint of heart. And now, you've been warned. So let's start today's journey discussing money. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word money? Most people's eyes turn to dollar signs or euro signs or yen signs or whatever you have there, with thoughts also turning to bank account balances. While being in the financial industry, it's not uncommon for me to hear people say such things as, I want lots of money, or I have no money. Say the word money enough times, and I'd be willing to guess some of you even have that song by the OJs floating through your heads. But what is money? Since money is one of the cornerstones of this podcast, I think it's best to get a foundational understanding about it outside of many people's insatiable appetite for the money object. Again, I ask, what is money? As a first step, most of us will take our wallet out to look at the cash bills or the debit or credit cards inside. Or you might open up your online banking and point to your bank balance. There, that's money. Okay, but what do those bills or cards or numbers signify? More importantly, Have any of you considered why all these are considered money? When someone says, I want more money, is it because they want to roll around in a heap of Benjamins, also known as $100 US bills? Or is it because they're looking to achieve more freedom, more free time? After all, time is money, right? One way I like to think of money is as a container that stores my economic energy until I'm ready to use it to gather items needed for survival initially, and then eventually for some of life's indulgences. I find examples a good way to paint pictures of better understanding. Sometimes our minds accept information better when they can imagine them, and thus break down the information to understandable pieces. Like most people, you likely went to some sort of work today or this week. 
It consists of you using your mind or body to complete tasks for which you are trained in. Maybe you're even considered an expert in your skills. You can do things others can't or won't. Maybe you saved a life. Maybe you served dinner to paying guests. Or maybe you installed drywall in a house. The list goes on, of course, but you get the picture. Once you complete your assigned and expected tasks, what do you anticipate in return? What if your employer or client came to you, thanked you for your hard and good work, and provided you with the payment of a cow, or a roll of carpet, or a box of batteries? I'd venture you'd give him a look as if he had just fallen from the sky. It's possible you might be able to use some of these items for yourself, or exchange them for other items you need. But that would involve hauling the good around and trying to find someone who has what you need and also wants what you have. So, say you have a roll of carpet and you're hankering for some french fries, or chips if there are any Brits listening in. Now you need to haul around your roll of carpet looking for the person with those french fries you're craving. Now humor me and assume you found your french fries savior. Not only that, but she's also looking for some carpet. Wouldn't you know it? You don't want all of her french fries, of course, nor does she want all of your carpet. Well, thankfully, both french fries and carpets can be apportioned. Except now, what's a fair trade? She wants 10 meters of your carpet for one bowl of french fries. You gasp! What robbery! That does not seem like a fair trade. But how would you even know? This example, in a nutshell, paints us a picture of some of the problems faced by our ancestors of many generations ago when they dealt with a barter system of exchange. Although, the barter system still exists in some corners of our world to this day. Even in the communist system of the Soviet Union, it wasn't uncommon for so-called employers to run out of money and instead pay their workers in other goods. I'm told from a reliable source of a story about entire regions that weren't paid for months, so instead were given rolls of material and bottles of vodka as payment. Now imagine trying to find someone else in that region with something besides material and vodka to sell you other goods you need. You may laugh, but this happened within my own lifetime, so most likely within your own lifetime. Enter money. A good that stores value of the work we've done so that we can exchange it for something we need with more ease. By now, and after that painted scenario, the four qualities of money should be more evident and self-explanatory as I go through them. These are the qualities that have been used through the ages to help decide on what items are best suited to take the role of money. The first quality is it has to be portable. How easy is it to carry around? If it's not relatively light and can't be carried in a small bag or pocket, it usually wasn't a good money. The second quality is divisible. Can it easily be made into smaller units? If it can't be cut down and divided into smaller pieces, it would be a terrible form of money. The third quality is durable. Can it last long periods of time? And we're not talking about days or weeks or months. We need it to last years, if not decades, if not centuries. Yes, centuries. Cow? Nope. What about the milk she produces? 
Big nope. Maybe a bag of fish? Unless you can find someone wanting a bag of rotting fish? Nope. And the fourth quality is fungible. No, this has nothing to do with growing fungus. Instead, can it be easily interchanged? Is the money of the same amount in your pocket going to buy the same things as the amount of money in my pocket? So that's the how money is chosen. Now let's talk the why. So money is used for, as a medium of exchange. It's a commodity used to enable the buying and selling of goods and services. Remember my earlier example about your day at work? Well, you want a medium of exchange that you can take and give to someone else to get those french fries you've been craving. The second why is it's a unit of account. It eases the keeping track of how much economic energy you have exerted or sold. In sporting terms, it's accounting for the economic points you have scored and can use in exchange for other items. It also helps provide a measure of exchange, so now you would know if 10 meters of carpet is a fair trade for a bowl of fries or not. And thirdly, it's a store of value. It keeps your economic energy stored, no matter how long it takes you to exchange that store of value for another product or service. You want to be sure that what you're able to buy today with that store of economic energy, you can also buy the same item one day or one year or one decade down the road. Even in thinking about dollars, don't you want that $100 you earned today to be able to buy you the same thing next year as it does today? If not, what's the point of exerting all that energy to earn it? That's a lot of money information to digest, so I'll let you sit on that and percolate for a while. It will be a core foundation for many of the things I discuss going forward. This should be a basic understanding of money, but unfortunately it is not. It's not taught in our education system, so it is important to discuss here, since so much of what I talk about will revolve around money. I assure you, this was not a waste of time to listen to. One day you will thank me. In any case, to transition to the next topic in mind, I can't help but recall a brief scene of an episode of the legendary Simpsons show. Yes, I used to watch it regularly through high school and university, but have not done so since. Nonetheless, I do recall many scenes that have stuck with me over the years. This particular scene unfolds just before Homer is set to have open heart surgery. He's laying in his hospital bed, and he's playing with the bed's controls. Bed goes up, bed goes down. Bed goes up, bed goes down. Bed goes up, bed goes down. I must admit it's been difficult not to have this scene play out in my mind as I watch the markets of late. And as I prepare these notes for this episode, the investment markets are in the midst of down sessions not seen in at least a couple of years. In reading the Almost Daily Grants email on February 27th of 2020, I learned that the S&P 500, which closed last Friday of February 2020 down almost 10.5%, has experienced a weekly drop of more than 10% only four other times since the end of the Second World War, namely in October of 1987, April of 2000, September of 2001, and October of 2008. The major culprit in the news cycles is the coronavirus that's spreading globally from China. Apparently this one bug has the capacity of not only infecting humans, but also single-handedly bringing investment markets to their knees as some business analysts would have us believe. Now please, don't get me wrong, 
I strongly believe the coronavirus is playing a role in this market temperament. I just don't believe it's the sole nor major contributor. Of course, I recognize and agree that its effect on production in China has likely been profound. From what minimal reports the communist government, i.e. a non-capitalist government, has released, it's reasonable to expect the Chinese economy will not go unscathed. And since China is the second largest economy in the world, as per a recent analysis by NASDAQ, second only to the US, it's likely the economic effects will be felt around the globe in the coming months, especially as quarter one earnings reports will reveal in the next couple of months. This will logically influence the investment markets as well, or someone would justifiably assume. Now here's where I'm going to let you in on some of my views on the global investment markets. Remember when I notified you of bumpy roads ahead in the intro? This is where things might get a just a tad bit bumpy from here on in. Yes, by most measures and accounts, we've been in the longest bull run in history, which began almost 11 years to the month, in March 2009. We had just gone through the financial crisis hurricane of 2007 to 2009. We have been cheering and praising the investment growth ever since. But I'm of the view that we did not ingest the bitter financial medicine that we should have in 2009. Rather than accept the hangover then, we just kept on drinking and partying. The longer that goes, the worse the hangover will be. Central banks made money cheaper and cheaper. The party just kept on going as the punch bowl kept getting spiked over and over. We've now reached a point where interest rates are negative for some countries around the world, unfathomable for generations gone by with even many economists today still scratching their heads wondering how this is possible. The moral hazard created over a decade ago has not been eradicated either. It's grown much bigger and much worse. When central banks and governments stepped in a decade ago to so-called save big companies from collapse, induced by companies' own errors, they created a belief that any time something goes wrong, they as central banks and governments will be there to save the day. In effect, they took risks away from the very corporate system that needs risks to direct better decision-making. And as the years go by, risk appetites soar because there exists a strong belief that there really is no risk in the stock market. If anyone screws up, a bailout will quickly follow to get us out. Think about it. If you knew that the Superman government would come swoop you away from the train barreling down on you as you walk on the train tracks without fail, Would you stop walking on the train tracks? The investment markets have turned into a skydiving adventure with zero risk. Even if the parachute fails, another mechanism will guarantee to kick in to save us from splattering against the Earth's surface. So the decision to go skydiving becomes very easy. You say yes every time because there's absolutely no danger to you. This is where I think we're at. With interest rates so low, Investors keep rushing into riskier and riskier assets in search of keeping up with return expectations. At the same time, they do so with the belief that if and when things go wrong, the central banks and governments will be there to save their money. And then, this week, the first week of March 2020, I think we saw an omen of things to come. As the markets continued their downward spiral, the U.S. Fed stepped in, somewhat unexpectedly, and cut rates by half a percent. This is the first emergency rate cut issued by the Fed since, want to venture a guess? Since 2008. 
I'm not saying there's any direct correlation. So no, just because the last emergency rate cut was during the financial crisis, it doesn't straight away prove the point that markets are again in deep trouble. What is telling is that as soon as the rate cut was announced, the markets briefly rallied up, but quickly sank yet again. It's reminiscent of the clip from the Matrix movie, where Neo unleashes a barrage of bullets at the agent and hits nothing but air. A whole clip of ammunition wasted. I'm sure the Fed is feeling the same way Neo did. What the? I believe another clue rests in the U.S. Treasury rates. This first week of March 2020 saw the 10-year yield drop below 1%. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the U.S. government is borrowing money at a rate of less than 1%. And not to be outdone, the Canadian 10-year yield is following suit. How ludicrous is this? When's the last time you borrowed money at 1% for 10 years? And remember how I mentioned negative interest rates? Well, the German 10-year Bund is yielding approximately negative 0.65%, while the Swiss 10-year is closing in on negative 1%. That's right, as a lender, you're paying these governments to borrow your money. If this isn't craziness, I don't know what is. The list goes on and on, but I think I'm giving you enough to think about as it is. I just don't buy that we're in some sort of endless boom. If these were truly good times, we would not be piling up all this debt. Governments normally pile on the debt in bad times, not good times. Nor would we be watching the central banks with bated breath to see how they'll keep us from the next abyss. That's no sign of good times. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be a negative Ned here. I just think there's a narrative at work that's lulling many investors into a false sense of safety. Prudent steps should be the way forward, until such time that some of this nonsense unwinds from the system. Alas, it's time for this recovery session to come to a close. Thank you for tuning in. We'll reconvene next week for another installment of The Recovering Bankster on money, markets, and investments. Again, don't let the bumpy road deter you. It's part of the journey, so be sure you stick around for a while. You'll get used to it. If this is the kind of bumpiness that gets you excited, though, jump on to www.adrianinvests.ca for more ways to connect with me. It's a site that will be growing with a lot of useful information and content. It's the antidote for your recovery withdrawals. And don't be afraid to invite others to our financial recovery sessions. The more, the merrier. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, keep your integrity, and see you at the pinnacle. And to close out this episode, a friendly but professional reminder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and shall not be construed to constitute any form of investment or investment advice. The views expressed are those of the host and or guest where applicable and not necessarily those of any businesses associated with Adrian Harsimian. Information has been compiled from sources believed to be reliable, but no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made by any person as to its accuracy, completeness, or correctness. All opinions expressed are as of the date of this podcast episode and are subject to change without notice. The information is prepared for general circulation and has been prepared without regard to the individual financial circumstances and objectives of persons who receive it. You should not act or rely on this information without seeking the advice of the appropriate professional. Products or services referenced may not be suitable for you 
and it is recommended that you consult with a financial advisor if you are in doubt about the suitability of such investments or services. Thank you for listening to today's episode.